The text for today's sermon is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. If you have a Bible, please follow along with me as I read. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who, have, who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment for eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we hear your word preached, uh, that you would help us to see and to know the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus, that you would help me to teach it um, well and guard me from error, and God, that you would equip us for the days in which we live. Amen. Disruption in life is inevitable. There you are, you're going about your daily routines, your daily work, your ongoing relationships, and all of a sudden things get thrown up into the air and the entire world around you literally comes grinding to a halt. Sometimes disruption can be a pleasant surprise. Always disruption seems to be inconvenient. And often disruption is painful. The, the Thessalonians were learning this to be true. You are learning this to be true. 
To be certain, there are different kinds of disruptions, but often disruption includes some kind of affliction or suffering. And there are different kinds of sufferings in different seasons of life. It could be the suffering that comes from physical difficulty or health concerns. It could be the suffering that comes from the persecution of your faith. It could be suffering that comes from that general category of affliction. The things that happen to you that you can't control, but that are incredibly unpleasant. And it doesn't take long to realize that life can be hard sometimes. The Christians of Thessalonica were experiencing persecution and affliction. We don't know all of the details, but we know that there were some who were putting a tremendous amount of pressure and discomfort upon them due to their faith in Jesus. And beyond that, the afflictions for them, like for many throughout the years, were many. (laughs) But in the midst of suffering and affliction, God was doing something. And we see that in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter 1. That affliction plays a particular role in your life. For God doing something. Affliction plays a role in your sanctification. Now sanctification is the process by which God makes you holy. He grows you in him. And we see that in the midst of this difficulty that Paul is recognizing that God is changing these people. Sometimes it's easy to see the way that God is changing us. Sometimes it's difficult. I think it's in the middle of difficulty or affliction, it's often very difficult to see the way that God is changing you because in those moments we are very tuned in to ourselves. We sink with inside ourselves very often. We become hyper-focused on what we feel or what we're experiencing in our physical state. But God is changing them. And he's changing them along the core of their desires and the core of their interactions with each other. And their affliction is what is contributing to this sanctification. And so how are they growing? Well, look with me at verse 3. He says that he's giving thanks to God because your faith is growing abundantly, number one, and number two, That the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. God is growing them by increasing their faith and increasing their love. And it's being birthed, growing and increasing is being birthed during a time when you would expect them to be contracting and withering. (laughs) You see, you can't always evaluate the importance of of the things that are happening based on what you feel or see in the moment. Sometimes it takes time. It's sort of like the man who once bought a home with a tree in the backyard and it was winter and there was nothing markedly different about this particular tree. But as the spring came, he looked out one day and the tree had grown leaves and some tiny pink flower buds. And he thought to himself, wow, this is delightful. I have a flowering tree. I will enjoy 
its flowers throughout the year. But then within a few days, the wind picked up and all the flower buds blew off the tree and the man thought to himself, oh, this tree is worthless. The flowers are gone already. The summer continued to move forward and one day the man noticed that the tree had grown small green fruit about the size of nuts. And so he picked the largest one that he could find and he tasted it. Ugh. Sour and bitter. This tree is worthless. Its flowers are so fragile that they blow off at the slightest wind and its fruit is so bitter that it is good for nothing. When winter comes, I'm going to cut this tree down. But the tree took no notice of the man. It continued to draw deep from the water beneath it and enjoy the sunlight that came from above. And later that fall, it produced crisp red apples. You see, some of us see Christians with the early blossoms of happiness, and we think that it should be that way forever. <laughs> or we see bitterness in their lives or our lives, and we're sure that we will never again experience the better fruit of joy. But could it be that we forget that sometimes the best fruit comes as it ripens rather late. And sometimes that best fruit comes only after a very harsh winter. You see, just as affliction is contributing to the spiritual growth of the Thessalonians, it's causing them to become more holy in certain ways. It's doing the exact same thing for you if you're following the Lord Jesus. And I I've seen evidence of this. I've heard evidence of this. As our elders have been calling through the church list and talking to as many families as we can during this time or sending emails or engaging in text messages, uh, we've seen ways in which your faith is growing abundantly. It's expressed in a quiet confidence in the midst of uncertainty. It's expressed in your words and your actions that show diligence about the most important things. It is reminding you this situation and this growing faith of yours. It's reminding you not just to rely on God in times of crisis, not just to rely on God for the, for the things of the most serious types of health issues, but it's, rely, it's reminding you that you need to rely on God for every single thing in your life. He's the one that gives you your very next breath. He's the one that provides the shelter over your head. He's the one that provides you with the skills that you need to have a job. And this is part of your growing faith. We've also seen expressions of how this affliction is growing you in your love for each other. Because as I've talked on the phone to many of you, as our elders and pastors have as well, and we sort of debrief, hey, is there anybody that needs anything? Is there anything that's happening that we need to know about? There is one resounding theme and the resounding theme is that again and again and again, the vast majority of you are asking the question, what can I do to help? Is there anyone else who needs anything that I can do? How can I help the other people of our church family? Growing in love for each other. Those are simple evidences. Just a few. 
But the fact that this affliction is doing that in you, the fact that affliction made these Christians in the first century more holy is proof, as verse 5 says, look at it with me, is proof that God's righteous, God is righteous in his judgment. It says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Or perhaps we might say more clearly, we think of judgment as always a negative thing. We might say it more clearly, that God's judgment in these things happening is right. (laughs) That during a season of difficulty, that God is right to have seasons of difficulty. He accomplishes things in them. And he, through afflictions, makes you more like Jesus. And that leads us to the second part of this text this morning. Look at it with me through verses 6 through 10. Because suffering helps aid in your sanctification, but suffering becomes tolerable to you and to me because Jesus is coming back. The return of Jesus will alleviate the suffering for Christians in every respect. Look at verses 6 and 7. For those of you who don't know God or are opposed to his purposes, it will cause great suffering. For those of you who know God and are in line with his purposes, it will alleviate great suffering. Verse 6 says this, Since indeed God considers it just to repay the afflictions of those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Remember, the afflictions that they are experiencing as the hand of those who are opposed to the gospel. And the purpose of this book, as you'll see over the coming weeks that we look at it together, is not just to address the persecutors directly, or not just to inform how things are going to all shake out in the end, but the purpose of this book is to enliven hope for people in the midst of affliction, and a particular type of hope, a hope that is rooted in the second coming of Jesus. We call that an eschatological hope. Eschatology is the study of the last things. Jesus returning is part of the study of the last things, and so hope that is rooted in the return of Jesus, eschatological hope. And this is where hope in the ultimate justice of God is exercised in the coming of Jesus, and it provides both comfort for the Christian and endurance for the Christian. For those of you who feel like you've been persecuted, for those of you who feel like you've been left out or you don't fit in, for those of you who feel like the culture around you is making it incredibly difficult to be a faithful follower of the Lord, keep your eyes on the horizon of history. Because when the sun begins to set, the tables will be turned. In this life, the persecutors of Christians seem to us to be the ones who experience comfort and relief (laughs) while inflicting incredible difficulty for those who follow the Lord. But what we see in this picture is that when Jesus returns, the persecuted 
will be the ones who experience comfort and relief. And the persecutors will be the ones who experience ongoing and eternal affliction. Be careful here. Be careful lest you read a passage about the judgment and begin to accuse God. This is not some sort of petty form of playground revenge. You punched me, so I'm going to punch you. This is the God who is perfectly loving in every one of his actions and perfectly just in every one of his ways. And in his love and in his justice, performed in this action of the second coming of Jesus, we see that he rescues those who are his children and he destroys those who are his enemies. For the one who doesn't know God or obey the gospel, it says, the Lord Jesus is revealed here with mighty angels surrounding him And the picture that Paul creates is that he is inflamed in fire. That is the picture of the army of heaven coming for battle. They will be overpowering in their force. And on that day, those who are opposed to the gospel or enemies of God will have no place to hide. And all accounts will be settled. Verse 9 says that the punishment will have a couple of different components to it. The first component is that there will be eternal destruction for those who are opposed to God. Jesus warned about this eternal destruction in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. This is not a new concept to those who have followed the Lord or listened to the words of the Savior. It's certainly not a welcome concept for the culture around us, and yet there's no neutral place here when it comes to standing with God. There's no party in hell. The picture is dire and it's horrendous. The second punishment or the dynamic of that punishment is it says in verse 9 that they'll be separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when you start to think to yourself for a moment about that, you think, well, I don't know if I've been in the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, so I don't think I'm going to miss too much being separated from it. Think again. Because even if you can't think of a time when you have felt or experienced the manifest presence of God regularly, you without a doubt experience the fact that the Lord Jesus upholds all things together, as it says in Colossians 1, and that the common grace of God that is spread throughout all humanity extends to the world, and that things right now are way better than they should be, all because of God's gracious hand. 
I don't want to experience a reality or an existence without those things. And I don't think you do either. For the believer, the one not just who believes that God exists, but has trusted Jesus to forgive them, the coming of Jesus will bring relief. Look at verse 7. It's part of God's, God has considered it just, verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted. And verse 10, that when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among us. For the believer, you're going to experience relief and marvel because the bridegroom has come. Again, Matthew chapter 25 gives us a picture of the kingdom of heaven. And it says it will be like a bridegroom that comes to the wedding feast. And those who are prepared will rejoice at his coming. It's almost like they will have relief. And they will marvel. Do you remember what it was like the last time your spouse came home from a business trip? A week away and you're navigating on your own excitement and relief <laughs> the bridegroom is home or when your loved one came home from Iraq or Afghanistan after deployment months away sometimes longer excitement marvel <laughs> and relief the bridegroom has returned. Or perhaps that time when your spouse comes home after a stay in the hospital because of a serious illness or perhaps a surgery and they come walking through the front door, strength in his voice, determination in his step, relief in your heart, the bridegroom is home. And why does Paul tell us this? Well, surely he wants to give us a picture of what is to come. But he tells us this because he wants us to have a clearer understanding or experience of the nature of time as it relates to affliction. Because when you're in the middle of difficult times, it feels like time is standing still. Is this ever going to end? Am I going to be able to make it through? But listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I know it doesn't feel like it, but your life is very short. And if your life is very short, then your afflictions are very, very short. I know it doesn't feel like it, but they are brief when you compare to the length of time that is eternity. If you're in your 40s like I am, you probably just have small slices of memories back from your middle school years even though it was just 30 years ago. 
Now think about the coming of Jesus, the standing on the precipice of eternity, and how you might be experiencing some serious persecutions now, or your physical afflictions might be severe, or the ongoing weight or burden of the pandemic rests heavily upon you. But I promise you, 30 trillion years from now into eternity, when we are just but a few moments into that day, your afflictions right now, as you look back upon them, will seem but mere seconds of your reality. Paul's trying to give you the perspective of time so that you have hope, so that you know that relief is coming, so that you know that God is making you more holy even in the midst of affliction. And so with that in mind, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to live? And that's where he brings this text to a close in verse 11 and 12. He prays for them. Look at it with me. We're going to have it on the screen as well. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. When you pray, you're asking God to work, to act. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you live right now? You resolve to glorify Jesus by the things that you do. <laughs> by your good resolves, Christ is glorified in you and you in him. By your good resolves, he says, now the first question you have to ask of this short prayer is, why does he pray that God would make us worthy? The gospel people who are listening to this message right now just had all the hair on the back of their neck stand up because nobody's worthy. We know that to be true. Again and again, you can't earn your salvation. You can't somehow be of worth to attain heaven. Why does he say that he prays that we'll be worthy when we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What does that mean? Well, the word worthy here has the sense of being suitable for something. It's not to evaluate or assign value. It's to be suitable or fitting for a particular situation. Think about it this way. If you are having an esteemed guest over to your house for dinner, you're probably not going to serve them grandma's meatloaf as much as it is good for you. You're probably not going to throw a couple hot dogs on the grill. You would say that meal is not worthy of the guest. In other words... That is not a fitting meal or a suitable meal for this esteemed guest. If the governor 
who's now very esteemed, is coming over to your house for dinner tonight, you are going to try to make your very best dish. You're going to go to the store and you're going to try to get the best steak that you can buy or the nicest piece of fish that you can attain. You are going to try to make a meal that is worthy of the guest or suitable or fitting for that guest. You see, the emphasis of the value is not on the food itself. It's actually on the guest. Likewise, when, God, when Paul is asking God to make you worthy, or God is asking you to live a life worthy or fitting or suitable to the calling that you've been called to, the emphasis is not on the value of your actions. The emphasis is on the incredible value of the calling. And the calling that he's talking about is the calling to be a Christian. The incredible gift of God in grace that he lavishes upon you. The overwhelming inheritance that he gives you for all eternity. The wonderful intimacy that you can now experience with God, your Father. And so let your life be worthy or be fitting or be suitable because there is nothing of greater value to you than Christ. And there's no higher calling than to follow him. And the way that that happens, he says in verse 11, is that you fulfill every good resolve or every resolve for good and every work of faith <laughs> a resolve for good resolve that word means desire some of your translations that you might be reading you might even say your desire to do good things there's an intentionality to it there's an effort attached to it your desire, we might even say your good resolves. Maybe you've been coasting. <laughs> Perhaps you don't function with resolve. You've been simply drifting along with the winds of the culture, whatever direction they're going to take you. Winds that will ultimately lead you to a very, very bad place. But resolves for good and work of faith mean that Christ is glorified in you and you in him. And just in case you think that this now all of a sudden sounds like simply working harder for your salvation or working harder to please God... Don't miss some very important words here. Consider the end of verse 11. This resolve for good and work of faith happens by his power. In verse 12, this happens according to the grace of our God. That the glory of the gospel of Jesus begins to shine all the more brightly in here because God saves you from your sins according to his power. His power, not yours, and by his grace, not your effort. He brings you from death to life. He makes you be able to see from the state of blindness that you are in. He gives you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. He enlivens you to the things of him. And a life in following Jesus in this kingdom of God, he has seen to make you 
worthy of it, verse 3, even though it contains many trials and toils and struggles and snares, many afflictions. He says that you're suited for it. And the same power and the same grace that saved you is now empowering you and giving you grace to these good resolves. And when that happens, Jesus is glorified in you. And you share in that glory in him. So what are some good resolves and some works of faith? (laughs) Some of you know what they are. It's a good resolve and a work of faith to read your Bible, (laughs) to wake up in the morning and trust that God is going to speak to you through his word and that even though you might not remember what you read just two days ago, you look back and recognized that you were spiritually nourished by it. It's a good resolve and a work of faith to continue to be generous even in the midst of uncertainty. It's easy to be generous when there's great certainty. But to trust that the investment into things of the kingdom of God are greater than the investment into the pleasures of the world is a good resolve. It's a good resolve and a work of faith to pray and then to pray again and then to pray again believing that the God of heaven who sees all and knows all and distributes according to the pleasures of his good will and the power of his son to uphold all things and who holds everything together in the right time and in the right way that this God has chosen to work through specifically the prayers of his children. That's a good resolve. It's a good resolve and a work of faith to share Christ with that person you've been thinking about. To trust that as you begin speaking with them and the opportunity is presented, that it's not your words that are going to actually convince them. It's an intellectual argument that it is the presence of the Holy Spirit speaking through you that breaks down the things that you cannot see and do not understand to move people from hell to heaven. It's a good resolve and a work of faith to move from blowing with the winds of culture or to get up out of your stagnant state and to do something, (laughs) to act, to be intentionally pursuing obedience to Christ. Because we see that by your good resolves, Christ is glorified in you and you in him. And in the midst of difficulty, God is working in you. Relief and marvel is coming at the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, by your good resolve, Christ is glorified in you and you in him. 
I want to close this morning with some words from the Puritan preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 1700s. He is widely considered to be the greatest American theologian of all time and perhaps the greatest American philosopher of all time. Edwards wrote 70 resolutions for his life in the years 1722 and 23, when he was just 19 years old. I can't help but think of them when we talk about good resolves. Let me read just a few. When it comes to his purpose for life, resolution number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Number six, resolved to live life with all my might while I do live. On his spiritual life, resolved to examine carefully and constantly that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt of the love of God. And so to direct all of my forces against it. Resolved. To study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. On suffering. Resolved, when I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Resolved, after afflictions, to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them and what I might have got by them. And finally, resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. What are your good resolves? One of the greatest opportunities that you have right now in this moment of disruption <laughs> is to not waste it to change some things, to make good resolves, to do works of faith by the power and the grace of God. And I wonder what those resolves are going to look like for you. Because by good resolves, Christ is glorified in you, and you are glorified in him. Please pray with me. Father, help us to see the weight of time and eternity. Embolden us in the midst of affliction with relief and marvel and the hope of such things at the coming of Christ. Help us to see the way that you are changing us right now and help us resolve, Lord, this day, 
do good and to work by faith. For the glory of your Son. Amen.